Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash slatemoney. And by Open Account, a podcast series created by Sujin Pak and Umqua Bank. Open Account explores, through honest and sometimes comical interviews, our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. And by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. Hello! And welcome to the Disparate Impact edition of Slate Money. Yes, you're going to find out what that means. Your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I am joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello, everyone. We are, This is where Kathy gets to really dive into her comfort zone yes, this it's week. True. It's going to be a fantastic one. And of course, Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, everybody. Jordan Hello. Weissman, I, I'm going to tell the listeners, is very good looking today. Oh, Stunning. You, Stunning. I, what Felix means is I got a haircut, which <laughs> I'm the only one who walks into the Slate office where ever, with a haircut and everyone turns and say, Jordan, you got shorn. And that's so uh, anyway. Um, and and he, he also has a Banana Republic hoodie that he bought with his Banana Republic store store credit card. At some point, I want to do a segment on store credit cards. Yes, this mm. is if Felix is now outing me as a Banana Republic card member, which is I think one of the sadder biographical details that's come out <laughs> about me on this show. But it's true, people. Not, not the my last, main credit card. Not the last. There will be many more humiliating <laughs> moments for me, hopefully for years to come on this show. So we are we are not going to talk about store credit cards this week. Although if you have questions about store credit cards. Or if you have stories about store credit cards, send them in to slatemoney at slate.com and we will do a whole segment on store credit cards because they're interesting. We are later going to talk about whether you can run two companies at once, specifically whether Jack Dorsey can run two companies at once. And we are also going to talk about my favorite subject, which is distressed debt. But I see Kathy O'Neill chomping at the bit here. And <laughs> that was that was actually that was the chomp. There was a bit. Yeah, there was a chomp. We gave her a bit. She's chomping at it. Let's yeah. Kathy. Yeah. Kathy, what is disparate impact? 
disparate impact is a legal term, and I'm not a lawyer, okay? So t- so tell, uh, I apologize if I say this wrong, but basically it's an idea that you might have a neutral policy. It looks neutral on the outside, but nevertheless has dip- disparate impact. So if you're a company and you're giving loans, for example, and you charge more or you give worse terms to minorities, then uh, even though you're not intentionally being discriminatory, that's called disparate impact. So basically, if I give better terms to people on the first half of the alphabet and worse terms to people in the second half of the alphabet, it's just, it, there's nothing racist about that necessarily, unless it turns out that black people in general turn out to be in the second half of the impact alphabet and white people in the first half of the alphabet. And then the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau can crack down on me and say, Oi, Felix, what you're doing has disparate impact, like as in the impact of what you're doing is different on black people than it is on white people, and therefore it is illegal. Yeah, that, that's about right. And I think part of this is, you know, some you know unintentional discrimination but also it's to prevent people from just looking for workarounds to discriminate people without being too obvious against people without being too obvious that's a really good point jordan i mean sometimes you you suspect there is intentional discrimination but they're hiding their tracks really well yeah and you don't want them to get away with that yes just because they didn't email every all the salespeople saying don't you know don't give loans to black people like they still should get in trouble if they're not giving loans to black people now we we have kind of talked about this in the not so distant past when we were talking about whether it is okay to use social graph data in underwriting loans and the general consensus seemed to be for all my best attempts to play devil's advocate that it's really not okay because what happens is you wind up getting you know, tarred with the brush of your friend's graph and your friends on social media are obviously much more likely to be, you know, your race than some other race. And so there's a bunch of racial stuff going on there. And so essentially what you do if you use a friend graph is you wind up using proxies for race. That's absolutely right. And it's, of course, a result of our segregated society. Like all of this stuff is basically... It's, it's coming from the fact that we already do have racism in our midst. If we didn't, this would be a non-issue altogether. Yeah. So, Kathy, you sent us this week a kind of fascinating story that's going on with this, uh, surrounding this issue of disparate impact in an area we's all, we've also talked about before, auto lending, mm-hmm. which is sort of the underappreciated mammoth of American lending. So tell us right. a little bit about that. So um, it's really interesting, um, w- just to remind us all, that auto lending has this weird thing where the the people that sell cars have partnerships with the people that lend money for those cars. So, And then on top of that, they have discretionary fees and interest rates to add. So what happens is a car dealer will um, arrange for a car loan for a given customer, but they'll also tack on an extra fee. And what um, the, C- the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has decided is that some of these things are disparate impact policies, and they're trying to get people in trouble for them. And what they're, what they're basically doing is they're using a bunch of statistical techniques to determine that black people end up paying more for their car loans than white people, and that's obviously racist. Yeah, and, this, well, and this is where we get into Kathy's like, real comfort zone here, and this is why this is like maybe the most Kathy story we've ever talked about, I, possibly. I appreciate which, it. Which is that the, the trick here is that with most consumer lending, lenders are not allowed to gather data on the race of their borrowers. However, the in fact, it's illegal it's for a, them to ask. Absolutely, with the exception of mortgage, I think that there's like there are a lot of mortgages you can do it. Everything yeah. else you can't. So in fact, what they're the, required to do it for mortgages. So what yes. the CS, CFPB does, and this is, and Kathy's going to go into much more detail about this, but this is the bit which I absolutely love, is they use the fact that 
America is incredibly segregated to come up with proxies for race, which are basically where do you live? And if you live in a black neighborhood, you, they say you have a very high probability of being black. If you live in a white neighborhood, they say you have a high probability of being white. They then throw in some extra data about what your name is, because if your name is, you know, Hernandez, then there's a good chance you're Latino and that kind of thing. And they wind up just creating these big statistical model, models which proxy what your race is. Right, exactly. So they suspect there's a disparate impact going on. They suspect that minority borrowers are getting screwed. And then they're like, well, we don't know exactly who minority is, who's minority. So they look at a census map and they say, oh, well, but we do know their address. Now, the problem with this, I mean, I think we need to do this. I, I'm not saying there's a, we shouldn't do this, but there's a lot of problems with it. Number one, there's a lot of uncertainty around who is actually black. Their model says, basically, their model assigns a probability to each borrower that they're minority. And above a certain threshold, they're like, okay, we're just going to But so long minority. as it's just a probability distribution, does it actually matter whether that person is black or not? Good question, Felix. And, um, it, you know, if the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau were only seeking to prove that there is disparate impact, that there is discriminatory auto lending, I don't think it would be that big a deal. But it's much more precise than that. Um, with Ally Financial, which was one of the big lenders for auto loans, they're actually seeking, they're, t they're telling the ally they have to pay back certain people a certain amount of money. And so getting it wrong in that situation means like white borrowers get paid because there was racist discrimination against them. And some black borrowers who presumably had some discrimination against them don't get paid. So it's like it, it's where statistic, statistical tire hits so the, the, the road. So the problem is in the remedy, not, yes. not, not, not in the crime. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. And so this is sort of... Uh, this is sort of a nightmare situation, I think, or at least for the lenders, or at least it's, it's the nightmare they said would come to pass. Um, one of the funny things about this is when the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was being discussed in Congress during the Dodd-Frank debates, um, they decided, or Congress decided they were not going to give it jurisdiction over auto over car dealers. That was like one of the big carve-outs that they kind of gave as a gift to the, the car dealer industry because it's so politically powerful. Um, and so the CFPB figured out a workaround where instead of going after the car dealers, they're going after the lenders who work with the car dealers. So that's nightmare number one. Nightmare number two is the CFPB has admitted that their model basically overestimates the amount of discrimination. They've said... and they, they, they haven't. They they, I don't they, think they've so. said that they have a model which can overestimate okay, the that's amount of discrimination, but they say that there's good enough at statistics that they make sure that it doesn't. They, they say, and they say it's like a 95% accuracy, roughly, when I was, they have a big paper on it, and they say about 95% of the time they get it right for when they look at other statistics where they actually do know the person's race and they compare their model to the real, like, you know, empirical stats. Um, nonetheless, they said, on, even if it does overestimate, They've said, we're comfy with that. We'd rather overestimate and have you guys pay too much than pay too little. And this is this is what I like about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, I, I recently, like last week, had a very interesting conversation with one of the new online lenders who's not using social graph to underwrite loans, but is using a lot of information about what university you went to and what um, your grade point average was and that kind of stuff. And I was asking him about disparate impact, and he was saying that, well, on the one hand, he would really love it if the CFPB had hard and fast rules, which you could just plug your data into some online tool and it would tell you whether you, what you're doing is legal or not. But for very good reasons, the government doesn't want to allow people to game the system in that way. So they have to keep it fuzzy. But the other thing which he said, which, which was more interesting to me, is that all 
lending is racist. Even if you just base on purely on FICO score, which is considered to be like the gold standard of, of what everyone does, if you run a sort of disparate impact test on FICO scores, it turns out that FICO scores are racist. And so the question isn't, are you racist? The question is basically, in reality, are you less racist than FICO? And if you're less racist than FICO, you can basically, you're, you're going to be able to get away with it because everything is racist and you have to draw the line somewhere. And the line is being drawn roughly around FICO. Yeah, so, I mean, look, this is a huge topic and it's it's a field that I I am in and I want to see developed. And I think you're right that all the current uh, systems we have in place are essentially more or less racist. And it's it's hard. It's really hard. And the tools we have are not standardized and they need to become more standardized and we have to understand it more, which we really haven't. Given how much algorithms take over the world, um, we, we really do need to go there. So, so one, you, one are point. you pushing back? When you say they need to be more standardized, are you saying you do want to move more away from the principles-based and towards something more rules-based? Yes, and I'll say why. Because one of the parts of these three-part uh, American Banker um, a series explained that there's there's a guy, Siskind, I think his name is Bernard Siskin, um, who's actually working for the banks as well as the Consumer Financial Protection oh, just Bureau. Just like Promontory Capital. Yeah. yeah. And he, what he's doing is he's, it seems like from the article that he's playing off different versions of this model. And because there's so many choices to be made when you make one of these models, even if you do it in absolute good conscience, you can make all sorts of choices. And that's even besides the fact that you don't know exactly what race people are. Um, whether you account for geography or something like that. And, and that one thing I, I need to jump in and add here is that these determinations are not always done in a purely statistical manner. The statistical techniques are used by the government to determine whether you're being racist. But there was recently a big fine on Hudson City Bank for um, redlining and basically not giving loans to people in black neighborhoods. And they had no statistical analysis at all in their complaint. They just drew a map and said, this is where the black people are. This is where your branches are, obviously. Yes. And then they find them. Well, yeah, that, and that's like, old just, school. That's old school. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I just want to add, like, uh, you know, I wrote about this on my blog this morning. And somebody mentioned that, you know, oh, well, you know, people who negotiate harder get better rates. Maybe, like, black people don't negotiate hard enough. And it's sort of, I'm just making that point to make it clear how how deep this runs. Like, Women also don't negotiate more for raises, but on the other hand, we also know that when they do negotiate, they're considered bitches. So it's like, whose fault is that? You know, I'm just saying we're not going to just figure this out with a snap Wait, of a so finger. Kat, you started talking about the conflict of interest at play, but you didn't finish. So how is, um, can you just talk a little bit more about how that got, this consultant essentially right. is working oh, sorry, both yeah. ends of the deal. I just, I feel like he's working just... both ends of the deal. And what that means is, um, there's just too many versions of this model, even good versions of this model, that so that banks can argue, oh, you don't even know what you're doing, so we're not paying anything. You know, what I'm saying is we do need to have an imperfect standard, I think, at least for auto loans, um, so that at least we can all agree on what we're talking about. Interesting. So you have this guy who works at the banks to tell the CFPB they're wrong, and then works at the CFPB to tell the banks that they're violating the law. Yes. And he's collecting money the whole and, time. So this and that's is, why you get headlines like, yeah. oh, they're overestimating. It's yeah. like, no, they have a different model. This is So one, one fascinating thing while reading through this series that you sent us, um, that just kind of as a coda, is if you looked at the sources that the reporter was talking to... Um, they are a lot of former CFPB lawyers, like this, oh, former staff attorney. This this industry, or this agency has only existed for five years. It's amazing how fast the revolving door has started turning. Mm. Even though it is a, like Felix was saying, they are, they are an aggressive uh, enforcement agency. 
But already we're starting to see some of the same things that happened with the SEC yep. and um, the conflicts of interest that you're talking yep. about uh, that are sort of endemic in government. All regulators become captured. It's the first rule of regulators. Okay. Slate Money is sponsored this week by Braintree, which is an excellent little way of being paid to put things online. You, If anyone wants to pay you online, it's often very difficult to try and set things up so that you can accept credit cards and whatnot. With Braintree, it's a couple of lines of code and bang, you can take Apple Pay, you can take Android Pay, you can take Venmo, PayPal, obviously all credit cards, debit cards, you can even take Bitcoin. And Braintree will just deposit all of that money directly into your bank account. It's incredibly easy. Uh, it'll make people more likely to buy things from you because they're not going to get frustrated at crappy checkout processes. So get this full stack payment solution, Braintree at braintree.com and get all of their fraud protection and customer service and fast payouts and everything. Braintree. There's, there's a couple of great icons of contemporary American capitalism. There's Steve Jobs, who ran Apple at the same time as running Pixar. There's Elon Musk, who runs SpaceX at the same time as running Tesla. And these men are kind of barely human. They're so amazing. And now it seems that there might be another man to join their ranks. Jack Dorsey. <laughs> <laughs> he, I, I kind of, I hate to say this, but I just really can't say the word Jack Dorsey in the same breath as like Elon Musk. Yeah, so I, I think that's for pretty good reason. Elon Musk is basically Iron Man, whereas Jack Dorsey is trying to make himself into sort of the, the next Steve Jobs. So I guess a little background, like saying you live your life like Steve Jobs in Silicon Valley is sort of like the rest of the country saying I try to live my life like Jesus, like complete with like the resurrection story. And that's Jack. Do, do you guys think you're a little bit over the top here? A just little, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> A little bit. Um, anyway, sorry. So I'll go back. To, I'll, I'll I'm glad come back there's a woman on this panel. I'll uh, come back. Ka Kathy, <laughs> Kathy, let me ask you, Kathy. Just I need, I need to ask you this. Do you have any idea who Jack Dorsey is? No, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, only because you guys have emailed me his name this week. So, I mean, who is this guy? Okay, so Jack Dorsey is one of the co-founders of Twitter. Um, he was a former, and he served as CEO for a while, and then was basically... For a disastrous while. Yeah, he was, he was canned in 2008 because he did not know how to manage a company. He, one of the things which all of the three main co-founders of Twitter have in common is that all of them, well, Biz didn't, but the rest of them all tried to run the company and they all failed miserably. Yes. So, you know, Twitter's founders are sort of some of the better examples of why you might want a CEO with actual managerial talent to come in and take over for, from the founders. Um, and the ex last CEO, Dick Stella, did a pretty good job building Twitter into a business, you know, building its revenue, but not necessarily figuring out how to grow its user base enough for uh, Wall Street's taste. So its stock has been tanking. So that brings back Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey, uh, after he was canned, went off and started his own company called Square, um, which we've talked about before. It's a you know it's a payment system essentially. Well, and they also do all sorts of other side businesses. Now they've kind of expanded, uh, but he has been CEO of that. Eventually, Dorsey made it back to Twitter's board, and he sort of infiltrated the company again as sort of a chairman position and then a product guy. And when Costello ended up leaving recently, they said, who's going to be the next CEO of Twitter? 
they made Jack Dorsey. They said they looked at Jack Dorsey and said, let's give you another run. You are always a product visionary. Now it looks like they are going to make him the full-time CEO permanently at well, the same time. Well, exactly full-time. Well, exactly. at the same. However, he's going to continue on as CEO of Square. So he's going to have two jobs at once. Now, how does this relate to Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs, as when after Apple eventually went and effectively helped found Pixar, you know, the movie studio. He was the money man behind it in a lot of ways um, and was CEO for a while, then went back to Apple and managed them both at once. So now this this resurrection story that Jack Dorsey has sort of fashioned for himself is, is coming to fruition in the most Jobsian fashion possible. Let me ask a, a couple of really dumb questions. Um, so uh, the previous Costello, the Twitter CEO, he improved revenue, but is Twitter now profitable? Twitter is not profitable. Um, Twitter loses money mainly because of stock-based compensation. So I think on a cash flow basis, it's making money. But if you account for the value of all of the stock, which it's having to print every week to pay its engineers, and it has thousands of engineers, and no one's entirely clear what they all do, um, it loses money and quite a lot of money every quarter. Its losses are still huge. And that's weirdly not the problem that Wall Street has with Twitter. The problem that Wall Street has with Twitter is, is mainly that they just gave it a ridiculous valuation when it went public, and now it's at a slightly less ridiculous valuation, but that means that the stock price is going down, and the problem that Wall Street has with Twitter is the stock price is going down. And if they can, and so what they would love to see is the stock price to go up and maybe, possibly bringing in the founder. It's a kind of trendy thing these days to have founders be the CEO. Uh, I think ever since, I would say like four or five years now, um, ever since like Andreessen Horowitz was founded, they were really, really strong on founder CEOs. And they there's been this new We're feeling. talking about the market when we say they? Well, Andreessen Horowitz is a venture capital company, mm-hmm. um, and they basically only fund companies which are run by founders. And even if they're bad managers, which this guy presumably is. Well, well so what they what they do is they look for companies which are run by founders who are not bad managers, and then they fund those ones. <laughs> it's the, you know the Mark Zuckerberg model is sort of what they're they're hoping for an ideal one. But so the idea with with Dorsey is that he sort of redeemed himself at Square. He built this company up and learned how to manage, and that's that's part of the story that's getting told now. I now think Square is private, right? There, well, that's the other twist to this tale is that Square is going to go public very soon. Oh. And the process of taking a company public is an incredibly arduous, time-consuming, and and difficult thing for any CEO to go through. And the idea that Jack Dorsey could do this at Square while also having another job running Twitter is a little bit hard to really... Cross. Not just running Twitter, but saving Twitter. That's like they're bringing him in to be like you know to do surgery. Essentially, this is not a company which runs itself. This is a company which needs a big turnaround, which is also much more work than just simply we have this great company and I'm going to sit back and let it make money. Which is where the Jobs comparison, I think, kind of falls apart to some degree. Which is you know Jobs ran Pixar and Apple, and he was rebuilding Apple. There's no question. Pixar though. He wasn't the creative guy behind that. He basically found a, a kind of a division of Lucasfilm and helped 
start them as their own company, basically bought them out and was the, the financial and deal-making guy behind it. But the original founder of Pixar was already there, like as a right-hand man, the, kind of one of the creative visionaries. Um, and so was the guy who was actually in charge of making the movies. So Pixar really did run itself yeah. in that sense. Mm. Exactly. But can't someone, can't, I mean, can you just delegate? Do you go figure out the IPO for Square to someone? I mean, presumably people know how to do that, right? Yeah, but that's like a really, that's like a, C, if there's anything a CEO is supposed to do, it's like figure out the damn IPO. <laughs> like that's... I mean, I don't know what I, what CEOs really do, honestly. They just seem to sit around getting paid a lot. Well, I guess this is a test, right? Is it, if he can actually pull this off effectively, maybe that's a sign that CEOs don't do as much oh, as we think. There's just one more twist here, which is that when the Twitter board announced that Dick Costolo was leaving and that they were going to search for a new permanent CEO, they said very explicitly that the new permanent CEO would have to be a full-time CEO. Oh, my God. So if they give the board, if they give the job to Jack, then that's them basically breaking their own word. <laughs> yeah, it just which just doesn't look good for a board. They're like, hey, you know, what we said three, four, five months ago. Forget about all that. And plus, it's taken way longer than anyone thought it would, and it's not clear how much they've really been looking and who how the decision is being made and there's also a mass an increasing amount of overlap between the two companies they're both trying to make this big push into online commerce and jack dorsey is like well every, every time that happens i'm going to recuse myself from all decisions and you're like, really? Oh, wow. Really? There was a brief moment where people were talking about Twitter buying Square, maybe to resolve all of that. But then with the IPO coming, that seems like it's not really going to ever happen. I mean, it's a strange situation. Um, I really, it is, I, I think this would be a hilarious trend to start, though. Like, if, like, a couple guys managed to pull off the part-time CEO role and just, like, more people try to imitate it, if this becomes a hot trend, I would I would be delighted. I don't know if that's ever realistically going to happen, but... It would be, I'd be tickled. I, I like the whole, you know, running AIG from my villa on the coast of Croatia, <laughs> like Rob, Robert Fenmache did. But that but was that at least... Te- that's just he, like advanced level of telecommuting. It, no, it really was. And I, 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 I'm, I'm all in favor of that. But I feel like if you're the CEO, you should at least, you know, unless your name is Can Steve I just Jobs. ask one last dumb question? I mean, it sounds like the only thing wrong with Twitter is the stock price. Like, is there really something well, else wrong with Twitter? It's not growing that fast. That's the thing. It's well, not thing, acquiring Things users. don't always grow that fast. Twitter no, this has is, been this old. Is absolutely true. So if you are a happy user of Twitter, Which like, I am. like me, um, like a lot of journalists, um, you're, you look at Twitter and go, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this. It ain't broken, so don't try and fix it. Yeah. And the fixing Twitter is going to annoy the people who are happy with how it is right now, which is us. So I have a vested interest, you know, in Jack, Jack Dorsey, Dorsey being distracted. not getting the yes. job because I don't want Twitter to be fixed because I think it's great just no, as it is. No, this is great because he'll be so busy with Square, he won't do a thing. <laughs> so this is, and th- this is sort of, I think, a, a larger role. Is If you're trying to make a, a business, don't make something for journalists. If journalists are like your main audience, you're screwed. You're never going to make yeah, any money. <laughs> because we're weird, <laughs> idiosyncratic creatures. And so we're not the audience you want to be playing to. Anyway. Okay. On which note, we are going to move on. Slate Money is also sponsored this week by Open Account, which is a series of interviews created by Suchin Pak and Umpqua Bank, which explores our collective uncomfortable silence around money. It's honest, it's comical, it's emotional. So download Open Account and the iTunes store to go deep into the most rewarding, challenging, and 
paradoxical aspects of the number one leading stressor in America. You know what that is, right? It's money. We don't like to talk about it, but Sujin Beck is talking about it. So open the account on iTunes. Check it out. So finally, this week, um, we're going to talk a little bit about a trend, let's say, that I've noticed, which is that first in Puerto Rico and then in mortgages, there's this trend of lefty types often being led by Elizabeth Warren, who complain about evil hedge fund creditors who buy up debt at cheap prices and then dare to ask to be repaid in full for this debt that they've bought up at cheap prices. And so this is the question which basically I have for, for Jordan and Kathy, which is, do these people making these complaints not understand what a bond is? Yeah, I, I actually, so I, I think I'm probably going to side at least when it comes to uh, sovereign nations, sovereign debt, I think I'm going to side more with you on this one, which is it is a little strange. Like Elizabeth Warren and, and the left kind of get angry when they see hedge funds bought Puerto Rico's debt and are now asking to be repaid. And, the you know, sometimes they do things like say, oh, we want you to shut down your schools that, uh, you know, so that you can pay us rather than paying your teachers, which sound a little bit repellent. But in the end, if there wasn't this market for distressed debt, they'd probably be paying more on their bonds in the first place, right? I mean, that's that's if you if there wasn't a, a yeah. buyer of last resort when Puerto Rico's debt goes bad, they wouldn't have any. It would be harder for them to borrow in the first place. Correct. I just, I mean, and we're going to hopefully talk about mortgages as well, distressed mortgages. But um, my thing is just, you know, when you buy something at a huge discount because you know that, which is to say, the interest rates are very high. You, the reason the interest rates are very high is because there's a chance you're not going to get your money. So all, the, really the only thing, the question isn't, do, are they going to get all their money back? The question is, um, you know, what is the, where is the power balance in that? Like when, when do they actually, when, when are people allowed to default? And in the case of Puerto Rico, um, you know, it's easy to make the argument that they just don't have the money. So, so stop already. Like you're not going to get your money, hedge funds. I mean, that's the, the and the hedge funds know that they're taking risk when they buy it. Yeah, no, that absolutely. You know that you're taking a risk, but you, but you know that that probability of getting your money back is non-zero, and so they're right. going to fight to get their money back. Right. More to the point, they have a contractual, they have a contract, and the contract says Puerto Rico will pay you, and it is absolutely their job as people making the bond market work like the bond market is meant to work, to then take the debtor to court and say, pay me. If they don't take the debtor to court and say, pay me, then what you don't have is any incentive to repay your debts ever. Like You're asking, when can you default? The answer is anyone can default whenever they like. But when you do default, you are going to get sued. That's what happens when you have bonds and you default. If you don't mind, I'm going to move on to the uh, the the many articles this week about um, private equity and hedge funds buying up distressed mortgages. Because there, it's not just the the buyer of last resort. There's actually there's a competition. I think it's an interesting example. There's competition between hedge funds and private equity on one hand, and like what are these things called community development financial institutions, um, which are you know community based nonprofits trying to buy distressed mortgages and they really have different goals. On the one hand, the you know private equity and hedge funds as as usual are trying to get back as much money as they can from these distressed mortgages and we can talk about how they try to do that. And on the other hand, um, the community-based organizations are basically trying to help the you know the neighborhood um, become more stable with affordable housing. So there's really two different goals and they're and they're in competition and 
a lot of people are complaining that the hedge funds are constantly winning. So you're, and, and I completely agree with all of this, and I'm a big fan of community development, financial institutions, and what they do. Um, so, but one thing they can do is just put in a higher bid. Um, but what you're saying, the reason why they maybe can't do that is because in order to make a higher return, in order to pay off, then in order, then then what they would need to do is adopt exactly the same tactics that the hedge funds and the and and the evil capitalists are doing, which involves raising rents and other such evil exactly. things. And foreclosing, that's exactly. the big one. Foreclosing or making like fake um, uh, renegotiated mortgages where it's like five years and then you're going to be totally screwed. Um, uh, it's just not very well explained. Um, but the, the, yes, the point is that they have much smaller margins, right? They're, they don't have as much money to put up for these distressed mortgage pools because what they're going to do with them is a very different is a different plan. And in particular, they're, they are not going to make a lot of money. Okay. So the question is, we, we, we all agree that there are like white hats and black hats here. So, and what you're saying is in that case, it is totally legitimate as a kind of financial tactic to try and shame the black hat hedge funds into not doing this trade. I think there's two, there's different ways of doing it. I mean, shame, I don't believe hedge funds respond well to shame. Um, I think you could either make it uh, some people suggest that um, the community development financial institutions get like a first look at these mortgage pools in some sense. So they, they, they're, they're allowed to bid um, or, they're, or the pools are smaller, so they're more likely to be able to collect the money for it. All sorts of ways of actually um, sort of fixing the market so it's not a purely free market. Um, on the other hand, my, my personal favorite thing to do is just to strengthen the, the laws on the sort of rental houses that ensue at the end of this, right? Because at the end of the, t of the day, the hedge funds and the private equity um, have just, they have control over vast numbers of houses, like millions of house houses that then they, they then rent and the, the rental agreements are sometimes really horrible. And so what you're saying is rent control. Yeah, basically, I'm saying we we need uh, you know if not rental control because that rent control has such a bad connotation, but we do need strong rent rental laws. I, I will say, I think one of the differences for me between what you see with a sovereign debt situation where you have hedge funds buying and mortgages is that in with mortgages we or with kind of the home buying market in general, we, we we've tried to create laws to prevent foreclosures, to keep people in their homes, to give people the opportunity to renegotiate, um, and that you know, say if you file paperwork by this time, that has to halt the um, the foreclosure process, et cetera, et cetera. What we're seeing with these these companies that or these hedge funds and private equity groups that come in and buy mortgages is that they're kind of skirting these rules. They're not if they're not actively thwarting them, they're certainly not doing anything to facilitate the process whatsoever. And so you run into the situation where some people get a lawyer and challenge the foreclosure process that that the the you know try to stop the private equity group from taking their house but presumably there are a lot of people who aren't getting a lawyer who can't afford one who don't realize that there there might be something illegal going on and just lose their home and so you do have these clashing um public policy issues where on the one hand you want to make these markets function as smoothly as possible. In some cases, through a slightly kind of a tenuous way, they're saving the government money in some ways. They're buying government-owned mortgages or government-insured mortgages. But you also don't want people getting thrown out of their homes where they don't have to be. Um, and so that's the conflict. And you know, one of the problems with when a when a like a hedge fund owns your home or a, a private equity group owns your home is that 
you know, they're not the ones you originally did business with. They're not going to be making loans to consumers in the future. Their reputation as being, you know, unsavory isn't going to damage their ability to do business and uh, to make more loans like it might with, you know, Bank of America or whoever. Um, so there really is no consumer lever here either. So it really is up to the regulators. And that's that's why I feel a little queasy about and it. And like a, a hundred mile view on top of it is like the, you know, the finance people who got us into the mortgage crisis in the first place are now swooping down and like owning all these homes. And it, it looks bad. It does look bad. And, you know, I'll just say two things. One is that there are other players in this market. One of my favorites is called American Homeowner Preservation. And they come in and they buy distressed mortgages and then they don't try and foreclose they do everything they can to keep the homeowner in the home and they refinance and because they bought the mortgage at such a low rate they can be very generous in that way and i i feel like there should be more people like that but yes i mean it's an arbitrage and someone like blackstone group can probably come in and pay more money for the mortgages if if they don't have that overarching aim but then the other thing which i wanted to say is that Home ownership is massively overrated, and that if we move from a world where people are aspiring to home ownership to a world where people are happy renting, that's a good thing. I absolutely agree, and I, I just you know, and that's why we need good rent rental rental laws. Okay, enough of distressed debt. We are going to move on to the numbers round, and I believe that only one of us has a dollar amount as our number this week. Jordan? I indeed do have a uh, dollar amount uh, as my number this week. It's a very precise one, so I'm, I'm actually breaking out my laptop as I speak. So uh, my my number is uh, $644,975,552. Um, which how is, many cents? Uh, actually, it's, I have zero cents. I think oh. that might be my Excel, my Excel spreadsheet rounding, but... Um, that is uh, in the most. That is how much money uh, the Department of Education has spent on Pell grants in the last academic year for beauty school students. Um, that is, we are spending about six hundred fifty million dollars a year funding kids to go to learn to be hairdressers, uh, you know, do skincare things like that. Um, and this is kind of a, a fascinating and weird story, which is. Recently, the Department of Education released this huge database, um, kind of unprecedented, where they combined Treasury data and Social Security data and um, Department of Education numbers to look at essentially the employment outcomes of kids at every school that gets financial aid in the country. There wasn't really something like this. And they were looking at only at students who received financial aid um, from the government. And what kind of everyone in the education space was shocked by was the sheer number of beauty schools on this list. It was about 14... I've been able to find about 1,400 of them. There are only 7,000 schools total. Most of them are small. Um, but what's become clear is we're spending a lot of money every year funding kids for... Or not funding adults, really, to go into careers where they often, maybe more than half the time, make less than $25,000 a year, make a high school salary, essentially. And the reason we have to do this is because states have these uh, certification rules about when you're allowed to cut hair. You have to have a certificate saying, I know how to essentially take care of the scissors, or I need to know how to take care of the hairbrushes and not get anyone infected or give anyone lice. And so it's created this situation where states are creating these regulations that prevent people from going into essentially a low-income occupation without a lot of training, and which is then leading the federal government to having to fund it. 
And it, it's kind of this screwy thing, and it's a little microcosm of some of the kind of larger problems in higher ed, too. Hmm. I suspect that part of that is just a way of gaming the federal aid system Oh yeah, on I mean, the part a- of beauty schools. But yes, it's interesting. My number is 100 million. It's the number of won that you need for your parents to give you to qualify um, as a fuar die. There was an incredible article in Bloomberg um, a couple of days ago about the very rich kids of the Chinese elite. Um, and it was so interesting. Um, you know, read it, please, because... It, it will actually have you en- end up with sympathy, I think, to some extent, for these extremely wealthy young people. I've talked to a bunch of my uh, Chinese friends in the Columbia area um, who are very well connected. And w- what they've explained to me is that in China, money is in- intri- intricately connected to power. So, And because nobody knows if they're siding with the right powerful person and who how that could change in, in a day or a month... Um, people just, they're very tenuous. It's a very tenuous link to, of power and money. So everyone is just like, they have no idea if they're going to be rich next year. They have this kind of like very short-term way of thinking about things. And her opinion is that that's one of the reasons you see these incredibly uh, crazy young rich people behaving the, terribly. The, the article starts off with a um, scene where a, someone, the writer calls an Uber driver and ends up getting a young Fuandai who's driving a Maserati, I think, right? Right. Because he thinks it's a good way to pick up women, more or less. Right. And <laughs> eventually gives them, a, like, a li- like a, I think, a list of, like, pro- good, like high-end prostitutes in the city. It's, it's a fascinating anthropological look. Also, I just did the um, the uh, currency conversion. I think it's about $15 million. Yeah, that yeah works out about to. $15 million. Yeah. My number is 15.4 megabytes. So the New York Times did a bit of research on a bunch of mobile websites to see how ad-heavy they were. And they found, this is fascinating to me, that the worst offender they found was Boston.com. Boston.com, if you pick up the average page of Boston.com and you go visit it um, on your phone, that page... Is fifteen point has fifteen point four megabytes just of ads, mm. and which w- take about thirty one seconds to download. And on a typical data plan, that amount of data which you're downloading in terms of Boston.com ads will cost you about thirty two cents. That's crazy for one page. Yeah. So I mean, this is the thing. wait, wait, wait. Oh, but here, yeah. it, it gets better than that because Boston.com is basically the free version of the Boston Globe. Um, and there's a paywalled version of the Boston Globe as well, which is just the Boston Globe website. On the Boston Globe website, which is mostly paywalled for subscribers, the amount of ads per page was 0.9 megabytes, which download in 1.8 seconds and cost you only two cents. So that is the clearest indication I've seen of the trade-off between subscription revenue and advertising revenue, that if you think you're getting it for free... You're not really getting it for free. You're just paying for it in terms of your data plan. What about ad blockers, though? Then yeah. you can just get well, not well, pay so at all. The, the reason why everyone's talking about this now is because if you have iOS 9 on your iPhone, you can download ad blockers and you can basically do an end run around this whole monetization strategy that Boston.com has going. Which has the media in a dire, dire freak out right now. Like <laughs> We are all true. running around with our hair on fire waiting for like, you know, the, the, when it's all just going to come crumbling down. It's, it's not good. 
I, I, I think it's fine. I think we're all going to be fine. But in any case, that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Thank you, Audrey Quinn, for producing this thing. All of you, please send in your notes and queries and everything else. The email address is slatemoney.slatemoney at slate.com. We if, love hearing from you. We really especially do. Especially if it's about store cards. I'm telling you, man. I want I want to hear your store card stories. Uh, this, does this count uh, the gift cards? Can we talk about gift cards as part of that? Well, gift cards are a little different, but I think, but I think it's interesting. I too. feel like store credit cards are more interesting than store debit cards. But if you have interesting store debit card stories, then maybe those yeah. two. It is. We're coming up to the holiday season, and most gift cards get bought in the next. That's true. Few months. Thank you to Andy Bowers for being the executive producer of the entire Panoply network, which can be found at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.